Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I think what our generation seems to be living through is the realization that rationalism is only part of the answer. I think I'm not the first one to notice this, that Auschwitz and Hiroshima were perfectly rational decisions and behaviors. So there's this sense that religion has to be more than rationalism. And mysticism offers, it says, sort of like in the corner, psst, hey, kid, how'd you like a direct experience of the divine? Would that help your religious life? And a lot of people discover that they're mystics after all when they're given that offer. This, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner has written, is a definition of a mystic. A mystic is anyone who has the gnawing suspicion that the apparent discord, brokenness, contradictions, and discontinuities that assault us every day might conceal a hidden unity. Kushner is a longtime student and articulator of the mysteries and messages of the Jewish mystical tradition of Kabbalah. He was influenced, like every modern student of Kabbalah, by a Jewish historian named Gershom Sholem, who was born in 1897 and died in 1982, and literally resurrected this tradition from obscurity. I spoke with Rabbi Kushner in 2014 in honor of Gershom Sholem's legacy, and it's in the spirit of Kabbalah, which wraps teachings and teachings, wisdom in wisdom, life within life, that we get to know Sholem through the living ideas of this rabbi in his lineage. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Rabbi Lawrence Kushner is the Emanuel Scholar at Congregation Emanuel in San Francisco. And he's written many books that touch on themes of Kabbalah, including a novel, Kabbalah, A Love Story. Gershom Sholem suggested that the Zohar, the Kabbalah's core text, was itself a mystical novel. He demonstrated that the Zohar was not written as had previously been assumed by a 2nd century Galilean sage, but by the 13th century Castilian Kabbalist Moshe de Leon. Still, it entered the spiritual bloodstream of Judaism with new ways of understanding and describing the inner structure of reality, a feminine side of God, and the cosmic significance of each ritual and ethical deed. According to Kabbalah, all being is rooted in the Ein Sof, the holy oneness of creation. So when did Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism enter your imagination and how did that happen? Well, it wasn't until I I was in the last couple of years of my rabbinic school education, it's a a five-year graduate program, that I began to realize that most of the ideas that I was fascinated by had something to do with mystical characters Mm. and the ideas that, that they talked about. I finally went to my professor at the time, Jacob Petachowski, his memory is a blessing, and said something like in his office. I said, uh, uh, Jacob, what's this about mysticism? And he sort of sat back in his chair and said, oh, I see you've discovered something. And we talked a little bit, and he pulled off the shelf uh, 
a book by Gershom Sholem, probably his uh, magnum opus. It's called Major Trends in Jewish right. Mysticism. And he gave it to me, and I ran home and tried to read it. And at about 10 o'clock, I fell asleep because it's really tough, serious, heavy Jewish history. But it's uh, extraordinary. And what Sholem did in that book was that he brought the Jewish mystical tradition to the English reading public. Mm. You know, I want to ask you about some language you used. I mean, there's so many ways to describe what Kabbalah is, what what this tradition is. But one, this is one way you did it somewhere. You said as a system of theosophy attains maturity as a system of theosophy claiming to explain the influence of human action on the inner life of God. That's a very intriguing statement, the influence of human action on the inner life of God. Can it's you, delicious, can you, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, say some more about that, what that means. Well, it, Sholem, uh, Sholem, again, it, it's, it's very difficult to separate out Sholem from Kabbalah, mm-hmm. but Sholem comes along and says that the Torah itself claims to be a document describing the inner life of God. And through studying the Torah, one therefore not only learns about how to act or uh, how to look at the universe, but one realizes that uh, you realize immediately that you are reading about the ultimate nature of being and therefore the DNA of creation or Mm -hmm. the warp and woof of the way the world works, and that effectively becomes the inner life of God. Right. So, I mean, just you know, I, I mean, I need to I need to back up a little bit because everybody's not okay. um, in this. But so so insof is kind of you know, and these again, this is your language: the font, the source, the matrix, the mother load of being, the the original light, right? That mm-hmm. original spark, that cosmic seed, a point of light containing everything yet to come. And then here's this wonderful way you 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 describe it. You say insof is to being what electricity is to the letters and words on a video computer monitor. <laughs> How, what, explain that. I, I think the, the best way to understand it, Krista, is to uh, r- remind you of two Hebrew words uh, that are, uh, in Kabbalistic language, much more important than their, their normal definitions. The first word is yesh. And uh, it's sort of untranslated. If you held my feet to the fire, I'd say you'd translate it as isness, as beingness. And yesh refers to virtually everything in creation, anything that has a beginning or an end, that has spatial coordinates, that has a definition, that is bordered by other things. And it's not just material reality. I mean, Love has a beginning. It has an end. Uh, Beauty uh, can have a definition. And it's not bad. It's not something to be renounced. I mean, anybody who's tried to live in the world knows that it is a world of yesh. You and I are yesh. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our microphones are yesh. The room, the city of San Francisco is yesh. Everything is yesh. Yesh is not bad. It's only bad if you think that's all there is. Turns out there's only one thing that's not yesh. It has no beginning. It has no end. It's not bordered by anything. It has no definition. It has no spatial coordinates. You probably can't say as much about it as I'm about to try to say. It is the opposite of yesh. It is called ein sof, without end. Um, 
literally it means nothing with a but with a capital N because if I said it was <laughs> right. something you know you got to stay with the logic here yeah. if I said something then you think oh well it's next to another thing yeah. and the Kabbalists uh, being serious about logic also they're very logical said no there's the only way we can talk about this non-yesh thing is to call it no thing or nothing and that becomes Ein Sof and that has something to do with God, the source of everything of Yesh. Everything in the world is made of Ein Sof. Everything in the world is a, a wave of which the Ein Sof, or God, is the ocean. And our knowledge, our knowledge of the ocean is largely based on the way it manifests itself in the waves. That is, the Yesh. So, my closest I can come to learning about uh, Ein Sof and God is by talking to you or looking at a tree or planting one. Right. But this understanding of God also defies the containers that religion generally puts God in, or maybe just that our minds put God in because they are what they are. Because it, this nothing with a capital N is also... Everything, right, and this, this and this more, under, right, yes. and more, right, right, and so it it is it is God in this conception. I mean, I'm I'm using the words I can. I want you to correct me and elaborate, but is also not a thing, but in in everything and is everything in this mystical understanding. Let me try it this way. Yeah, uh, there are t- two ways to understand our our relationship with God. I'm going to say right up in front, they're both just metaphors, relax, just metaphors. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the first one, uh, picture a big circle, and the big circle represents God, and then picture below it a very tiny little circle, and that represents you and the world. And uh, because the big circle is above the little circle, it's naturally hierarchical and therefore it's generically masculine and welcome to Western religion. All of Western <laughs> religions have this thing. God's up there and we're down here and we talk to God and God tells us what to do. You didn't mention the blah, beard blah, blah. in that on that circle. Okay. Right, but it, it's not far. There was a cartoon recently in the New Yorker. It shows two angels and a big guy talking without a beard and one says to the other, I just can't take him seriously without the beard anymore. <laughs> Okay, so that's the one. We all know that picture. Okay, that's the one we all know, <laughs> yeah. and you and all your, all of our listeners could easily <laughs> talk at length about that. Now, I'm going to give you another metaphor. Just another metaphor. Relax. <laughs> Same big circle that represents God, but the only difference is, is that the little circle that represents you and me is inside the big circle. And that is uh, a more Eastern, it strikes us as a more Eastern model, but it's, as Sholem demonstrated, it's widely, de- widely available in Western religious tradition as well. And the goal in that model is not to pray to God or have God tell you what to do, but to realize that you have been all along, contrary to all of your illusions, a dimension of the divine. And in moments of heightened spiritual awareness, the boundary line, which is the little circle defining you inside the big circle, momentarily is erased, momentarily is blurred, and it's no longer clear where you end and God begins. 
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, exploring the Jewish mystical tradition of Kabbalah. I actually want to, I want to quote you at yourself again because this is so wonderful. This is a definition of a mystic. A mystic is anyone who has the gnawing suspicion that the apparent discord, brokenness, contradictions, and discontinuities that assault us every day might conceal a hidden unity. Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's the closest I've come to nailing it down. Yeah. So it's wonderful to ponder, and we don't have the luxury here just being quiet and pondering it, but um, maybe people who are listening on the podcast can push pause. <laughs> um, uh, but it also raises these very mysterious questions, right? That conception. Um, I'm right. I mean, I think that that for me the the starting point for trying to make sense out of these very slippery ideas. Mm-hmm. William James in his uh, masterful. Uh, uh, not Jewish, uh, uh, on mysticism, identifies the four characteristics of a mystical experience. Let's see if I can remember all four. Uh, the first is that they're transient. Right. Uh, the, these mystical moments, uh, they come and go at, according to their own, their own timetables and for their own reasons. You have a mystical experience. You know, there's nothing you can do to guarantee a mystical experience and anybody who says he can guarantee one for you is a quack. <laughs> right. Um, the second characteristics uh, James identified is, is that you're passive. You don't have the experience. It has you. All of a sudden, whoa, what was that? Something has changed. Uh, the third is that the experience is noetic. Uh, I, that means I, that there is intellectual content to it but unfortunately, that leads us to the fourth. It is ineffable. You can't put it into words. Right. I want to add just one more thing before we go on. Um, the kind of mystical experiences that I'm talking about are, are not where the roof flies off the, the building, revealing the Mormon tabernacle choir singing Handel's Hallelujah Chorus and light streams out of your facial apertures and you get a new name. I. Yeah. I hope that would happen for you and for me. It hasn't had yet. I'm 70. The odds are against it. <laughs> what, what, I'm, <laughs> what I would rather talk about is um, I would call them quickie everyday garden variety moments okay. yeah. in which nothing big happens and that if you weren't sort of looking for it, you might have just thought it was something you ate or drank or smoked. Uh, well, what was that? And mm. th- then you go on. Um, but I'm I'm increasingly convinced that mystical seekers are able to have that moment where they lose themselves in the divine all the unio mystical experience several times a day, fleeting, mm-hmm. casual. Hmm. It's interesting the timing of this interview with you because just yesterday I was invited to be on um, one of the major talk shows in New York City. Brian Lehrer, mm-hmm. and uh, he chose as his topic, actually, um, religious experience, and it kind of very quickly got into mystical experience, and it, the experience people have of God, which is actually really not 
even a sentence that's spoken much, you know, on, on public radio or in our other uh, intellectually, you don't get invited, right? Huh? Sorry. And you don't get invited to dinner parties if you start no, talking that way. No, you don't. And uh, but what I'm going to tell you, and what will not surprise you at all, he offered for his listeners, you know, this is on WNYC in New York, to share experiences they've had, and of course, the phone lines completely just filled up. And the, the few people who were able to um, come on, you know, they, they talked about this garden variety experience that was completely transformative, very brief, and very, um, I'd say, organic, right? It was, a, And each of them actually described very much what, you know, this definition that you gave about the kind of the separation fell away, the sense of separation fell away. And it was this knowledge this experience of an, a vividness and a unity. Um, and, you know, the, even as I describe, as I tell about it, it sounds suspect in a way that it didn't when they were describing the moment. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a handful of smoke. Yeah, it's real hard to talk about. Yeah, yeah. But it's the most important thing to talk about. I, My suspicion is, and I don't know who... I think it may have been Moshe Edel, one of Sholem's best students. I'm not sure of this. He said that whatever it is that makes religion religion, mysticism has more of it. Uh, it, uh-huh. it seems to uh. be uh, freeze-dried. It seems to be intensified, focused. It, it, it's, the, it's the name of the game. It's the, uh. Uh, it's the very center of what we're talking about. Because to be sure, mysticism is intensely personal, and um, that's what it always winds up doing for people. But again, back to religious terms, I mean, to say that God is not just in everything, but God is everything, that it, and that occasionally human beings apprehend that, um, yeah. it also makes God much more messy, right? I mean, Gershom Sholem said the price of God's purity is the loss of his living reality. But it does also uh. cast aspersions on God's purity. Um, I mean, right, you've said, you know, I mean, it raises these questions, you know, if God is all there is, then why did God make the world? And if God made the world, how did God do it? And here's the hard one. If God is perfect, but the world is not, then what went wrong? Well, I, I mean, so many of those classic questions and conundra uh, come from trying to make lived experience sense out of God's up there and we're down here. Yeah. And most people crash and burn on that. I, I guess it's why I've become a mystic. If you think about the other circle and we're within the divine, it poses a, obviously different problems. It solves some and makes new problems. But the minute you say it's all God, then you're stuck with stuff you don't usually want to say is God, like pimples and dirt and what the dog left on the sidewalk mm-hmm. and Adolf Hitler. Yeah. And, the, but my question would be, if you say, no, that's not God, then I'm going to say to you, well, who made it then? You mean there's somebody else out there making just some junk and throwing it into the mix? I, you don't have that option. Yeah. So, so what, is the, what is the mystics, the Kabbalists... Um response or reflection on the dirt or Adolf Hitler? Like, what are the questions that this tradition asks? Well, any attempt to just explain those things quickly is going to be a a disaster, obviously. But it's not the where was God question, right? I mean, that's that's the the, the separation question. That's the 
God it, is up it, there and just we're down because, here. Just because it's God doesn't mean that you're not obligated to go on doing the best you can with the brain God gave you. Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't mean, therefore, that you should roll over and play dead or ignore dirt or filth or terrible things in the world. You're still obligated to do what you got to do. But you have to understand that if there's evil in me, I can try to banish it and push it away, but I won't succeed because it's part of me. What I need to do is to find something holy even in it and thereby try to redeem it and free me from it. And I can do the same thing with the world. I'm not creative or spiritually anywhere near big enough to be able to handle it, but I I think I have, this is the right way to go. Well, therefore, everything in the world that I don't like is there. I don't deny its existence. Yeah. What I, and I, especially if I say it's a manifestation of God, it raises a, a challenge for me, though. What can I do to redeem even this, this terrible thing or whatever it is? What is holy in it? And I will keep working at it. And that is how I can free myself from it. Lawrence Kushner says that the Jewish moral commandment, tikkun olam, is not so accurately translated repair the world as repair the cosmos. Here's the most memorable way the Kabbalistic connection between Ein Sof and human moral action has been told to me across the years by the physician Rachel Naomi Remen as her grandfather told it to her. In the beginning, there was only the holy darkness, the Ein Sof, um, the source of life. And then in the course of history, at a moment in time, this world, the world of a thousand thousand things, emerged from the heart of the holy darkness as a great ray of light. And then perhaps because this is a Jewish story, there was an accident. (laughs) (laughs) And the vessels containing the light of the world, the wholeness of the world, broke. And the wholeness of the world, the light of the world, was scattered into a thousand, thousand fragments of light. And they fell into all events and all people where they remain deeply hidden until this very day. Now, according to my grandfather, the whole human race is a response to this accident. We are here because we are born with the capacity to find the hidden light in all events and all people, Hmm. to lift it up and make it visible once again, and thereby to restore the innate wholeness of the world. This is a very important story for our times. And this task is called tikkun olam in Hebrew. It's the restoration of the world. And this is, of course, a collective task. It involves all people who have ever been born, all people presently alive, all people yet to be born. We are all healers of the world. 
And that story opens a sense of possibility. It's not about healing the world by making a huge difference. It's about healing the world that touches you, that's around you. Rachel Naomi Remen. After a short break, more with Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every show we do on the On Being podcast feed. Now with bite-sized extras wherever podcasts are found. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org forward slash discoveries. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation with Rabbi Lawrence Kushner about the Jewish mystical tradition of Kabbalah. We're exploring his wisdom as part of the living legacy of the 20th century historian Gershom Sholem, who resurrected Kabbalah for modern scholarship and spiritual renewal. As Rabbi Kushner says, Judaism had largely torn the pages of Kabbalah out of its history books in its response to the Enlightenment. There's something intriguing to me in, you know, we're having this conversation here in the 21st century and in an interesting way, kind of coming out of the 20th century and all its great plans and ideals and rationalism, um, there's a new curiosity and, and kind of hunger, and I think especially in new generations, precisely for... So there's a sense that things are more complicated, differently complicated than we made them. Um, well, it's enter Gershom Shalom. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so important for people to realize that for virtually all of the 19th and the first half, two-thirds of the 20th century, uh, mysticism was widely considered to be nothing more than folk magic and superstition unbefitting a, uh, an enlightened 20th century thinker. Yeah. And it, it all grew from um, the prevailing intellectual attitude in, uh, in Germany in the 19th century. It goes under the name of Wissenschaft des Judentums, right. the Science of scientific Judaism. study yeah. of Judaism. Yeah. It had to be rational. And these guys went into apoplectic shock when they found out what mystics thought and what they did. Right. And... The result was is that they simply, as I mentioned before, tore all the pages of about Kabbalah out of the history books yeah. and didn't even allow anybody to pay attention to it. When um, Saul Lieberman, the great, the great scholar at the Jewish Theological Seminary, was uh, asked to introduce Gershom Sholem once, uh, well, I need to give you a Hebrew word to get the joke. Okay. <clears throat> the Hebrew word shtus means folly, Nonsense, insanity, madness, idolatry, stupidity. I mean, shtus, it's junk. Uh, so Lieberman introduced Sholem the following way. Shtus, 
is Stuss. But the academic study of Stuss is scholarship. And then he sat down. That's what Scholem was up against. Right, right, right. That the reigning intellectual community thought it was just all so much Stuss, so much nonsense, silliness. Who would care about it at all? Except some historian like Scholem trying to figure this stuff out. And there's even an echo kind of with with the emergence of Kabbalah in the 13th century, right? There was that rational Jewish philosophy of the Middle Ages um, that uh, this Jewish mysticism kind of arose as a response to, or I don't know, I don't know if that's right, as a response to. Um, well, I think historically, Krista, and um, a lot of this is in Sholem, although some of it is just me, um, they're, they're trying to figure out a way to make things make sense. We have a, a, a in world history, there's a, a sense that when religion becomes too formal, too rigid, too structured, too logical, uh, the only way to bust it open and get something decent going instead is for mysticism to reappear. Right. Because whatever religion you're talking about, on whatever scale you're talking about, the minute mysticism becomes permissible, acceptable, possible, uh, it's an immediate threat to organized religious structures. Because what mysticism does is, is it gives everybody direct, unmediated, personal right. access to God. Right. And then they say to whoever is running the local religious community, I don't need you. I got God directly. So it winds up being a, an explosion of uh, chaos. Uh, Sholem used the word anarchy, that mysticism it creates an anarchic situation, and it's healthy and it's part of growing. Mm -hmm. Right. This, this idea of mysticism as a resource for change and development within religion. I mean, you know, and just to take this outside Judaism, and, 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 and you know, I think it's very interesting that Sholem did. I mean, he really was fascinated and took seriously mysticism as a human experience, right? I mean, he was rooted in Jewish mysticism, but he saw the parallels in other traditions. And so, you know, right now within Christianity, the fastest growing face of Christianity is, is Pentecostalism, which, you know, one sociologist I've spoken with, I gave this, I think, a wonderful name, who are, you know, Pentecostals are Main Street mystics. Um, and it is kind of turning Christianity inside out in very interesting ways. Um, well, I know it's messing up Judaism. I, I don't know enough about <laughs> contemporary Well, say some more. Say some more about how what it's doing with Judaism. The, and, and you well, mean the, the, the rise in mystical curiosity, openness to this? Or what do you mean by this? Well, yeah, um, uh, let's identify there are three kinds of uh, Kabbalah, at least, maybe a couple more, too. But uh, one kind of Kabbalah is called Kabbalah Musari, and it is ethical Kabbalah for some reason. And no scholar, to my knowledge, has really uh, done the work on this. But after the appearance of, of the, the Zohar, 12th, 13th century, Virtually every manual of ethical discipline written within Judaism was written by a practicing Kabbalist. Uh -huh. 
that that to me is an extraordinary statement, especially mm-hmm. since mysticism gets such bad press, and they say, "Oh, they're anarchists." You know, you can't trust them to do good things. Yeah, or it's purely uh, it's, spiritual, as, you know, right? As opposed beam to me up, Scotty, float away. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I, I think when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, you don't have an experience that is unitive in which you feel yourself dissolved into the divine all and emerge from that wanting to rip somebody off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your immediate desire is to show them how to get there with you and, and so forth. Uh, the, the second kind of uh, Kabbalah is called uh, Kabbalah Ma'asit, or what in uh, Jewish history is called practical Kabbalah. If uh, Krista has an experience of the divine, she now presumably, in some dim sense, also has an insight into the inner workings of creation and how everything functions together. And it might be tempting for her, not you, I'm just making this up, of course, might be tempting for her to use this new knowledge as a way of, well, maybe figuring out which stock to buy or right. which stock to sell or how real estate is going to go or maybe to help Timmy, who's sick in the hospital, get better. So kind of as magic. Mysticism is yeah. magic, yeah. And and that's why there's a whole lot of people who think that's all Kabbalah is and mm-hmm. superstition and hocus pocus and all. And the third kind of uh, Kabbalah, which is mainly what Sholem talks about and which most students of uh, Kabbalah of, of, of these times, like myself, is called a Kabbalah Ionit or theoretical Kabbalah. And that's pretty much what we've been talking about. Kabbalah is a way... Uh, to do Judaism. It's Judaism on steroids. Mm, mm. You you can't do another religion and do Kabbalah at the same time because Kabbalah only makes sense as a system for making sense out of and heightened sense out of classical Judaism. I guess I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on, um, you know, we, we also live in one of these ages when we're kind of, um, you know, hung over from... Uh, rationalism and secularism, but not with a lot of it. It's the same entry points that other generations had into religion. And I, you know, I want to ask this question in a positive way. What, how do you, what do you experience this mysticism and this mystical tradition to offer to 21st century people? Oi, to offer? What a... An annoying question. Well, do you know what I'm? I well, understand no, I why it's annoying. What is it that? What is it that's a? Well, it's not the right okay. word either. What is it that's attractive? Uh, that's not a good word either. Well, I mean, the the old saw is is that uh, if for our purposes we would say old time religion wants to know what God wants us to do. Whereas a mystical variety of the same spiritual tradition would say, no, 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 I want to know what God knows. I want to see the world through God's eyes. I want to lose myself in the divine all. Mm -hmm. That's how I want to experience uh, uh, God. That's how I uh, want to make sense out of religion. And your question in that sense, or it's so annoying, is just very, very perceptive. I mean, old-time religion, God's up there, we're down here, God says this, we pray to God for that, just doesn't seem to cut it for most of the people I talk to. Most of the people who are seriously into religion are seriously interested in 
experiencing the divine. The language is important. Uh, one could argue that what we're witnessing is the pendulum shift from the extreme, sometimes destructive rationalism of the past couple of centuries and returning to a, a, a more balanced view of religious life. And mysticism is the way home. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, exploring the Jewish mystical tradition of Kabbalah. We don't have much time left, but I want to just talk a little bit about some of the other just really intriguing aspects of Kabbalah and Jewish mystical tradition. Um, you know, the this notion um, that creation, this is not just mystical, but I think Kabbalah really emphasizes it. This creation is not something that happened once, but is an ongoing act, that creation is now, I think is how you said it once. Yeah, it's uh, the doctrine of a continuous uh, creation. Mm-hmm. That um, well, uh, God can't remember anything. It doesn't mean that God's above a certain age. It just means God can't remember anything, and God has no hopes for the future because I love this. There is no such thing as time for God. God experiences the past, the present, and the future as one present continuous reality. Mm-hmm. And so that means that for us, the world's coming into being is, as we said before, continuous. And uh, we come close to God when we are willing to experience the world in the same way, that it's always possible and that the divine is always present. And it's only the silly illusion that I'm in business for myself which becomes, in translation, that I made the world, that I'm God. God makes the world, and God's making it right now. And to really understand the implications of that statement is to have a mystical experience. Mm. And the world that we live in now is this brew of curiosity, uh, I think an openness to mystery, and therefore also to the mystical aspect of our traditions, a kind of cosmic curiosity alongside very well-publicized fundamentalist and literal, literalistic readings of religious tradition. I mean, Gershom Sholem did not live to see these particular dynamics. I wonder how you think about um, what the heart of this mystical tradition, I don't want to use the word offer again, has, has to offer to the world, I won't use that word, um, how you know how does it speak to this world and of course behind all of that behind a lot of the fundamentalism and the literalism is is a lot of anxiety and fear that is in fact mm-hmm. kind of reality based because there's a lot to be anxious and fearful about so well, what, I, yeah I, yeah i think what our generation seems to be living through is the realization that rationalism is only part of the answer that rationalism uh, can only get you so far. There, there was a time when people thought it was the answer and it could get you there, and it's clear that it won't get you there. And as a matter of fact, I, I think I'm not the first one to notice this, that Auschwitz and Hiroshima were perfectly rational decisions and behaviors. Mm-hmm. 
So there's this, this sense that religion has to be more than rationalism. And mysticism offers, it says, sort of like in the corner, psst, hey, kid, how'd you like a direct experience of the divine? <laughs> right. Would that help your religious life? And a lot of people discover that they're mystics after all when they're given that offer. Mm. Mm. Can I tell one more story? It yeah, reminds yeah, me of yeah, that. sure. Um, I, I was leading a... Uh, a tour of the the sanctuary of the prayer hall with the uh, children in the congregation's uh, preschool, um, and and then I figured as a piece de resistance, I'd have them come up onto the the bim or the little right. prayer stage up in front of the room, where there was a an ark where we kept the scroll of the Torah. It was uh, uh, accessible via a, a big floor to ceiling curtain. And uh, I, I got him up on the stage, and I was about to call them, uh, open the ark, but uh, I saw the teacher at the back tapping her wristwatch, which, as you may know, is an old Talmudic gesture, which means your time is about <laughs> up, bucko. So uh, I said, I tell you what, boys and girls, uh, we'll come back uh, when we get together again in a couple of weeks. We'll come back here, and I'm going to open that curtain there and show you what's behind it. It's very special. You know, and so they all say, Shalom, Rabbi, and like little ducklings follow the teacher back to the class. Well, the next day, the teacher shows up in my office with the following story. Apparently, the preceding day's hastily concluded lesson has occasioned a fierce debate among the little people as to what is behind the curtain. They didn't know. <laughs> and the following four answers are given, which is... Uh, uh, I think pretty pretty interesting. Uh, one kid, uh, obviously destined to become a professor of nihilistic philosophy at a great university, opined that behind that curtain was absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, another kid, uh, less imaginative, thought it had a Jewish holy thing in there. Uh, a, a third kid, obviously a devotee of American uh, game show television subculture, guessed that behind that curtain was a brand new car. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the fourth kid, and that's what brings us back to Gershom Sholem and Kabbalah, said, no, you're all wrong. Next week when that rabbi man comes and opens that curtain behind it, there would be a giant mirror from a four-year-old. That somehow that little soul knew that through looking at the words of sacred scripture, he would encounter himself in a new and a heightened and revealing way. Mm. Mm. Okay, that's lovely. I think that I think those are your last words. But unless was there anything? Is there? I, there's so much we didn't get to. But is there anything that just must be said um, to add to this? Well. There is one other story, if you want me, yeah. if you have, okay. And it is actually the one thing that we didn't touch on, which is in a very important part of Sholem's teaching. As we mentioned before, Judaism and Islam and Christianity are revealed traditions. Yeah. So therefore, what happened for all of them at Mount Sinai is of ultimate importance. I mean, did God talk to Moses? If he did, what did it sound like? Could we have picked it up on a tape recorder? Mm -hmm. In other words, what is the divine status of those allegedly holy words we find in sacred text? And it, it was Sholem 
uh, who I, I found in his book. It was on on the Kabbalah and its symbolism. Yeah. I must have read it 50 years ago. It changed my life. Uh, and I subsequently found out it did for most of my colleagues and friends who had read it also. Uh, it turns out that there is a, a mystical tradition that says that God really didn't give the whole five books of Moses. God didn't really give all ten utterances. There's another tradition that said that God gave just the first two. I'm the Lord your God. Don't have any other gods. Uh, well, there's a guy that Sholem found, a, a, a chassid named Mendel Torum of Raimanov. He says, no, God didn't even give the first utterance at Sinai. I'm the Lord your God. God didn't even give the first word, which is anochi, first person pronoun singular I. All God gave was the first letter of the first word, which is the Hebrew letter Aleph, yeah. which most people who know a little bit of Hebrew will quickly say is soundless, but Sholem points out that's not quite correct. Sholem points out, as a matter of fact, that the sound of the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet which coincidentally has the numerical equivalent of one, yeah. um, is actually the noise that the, your larynx makes as it clicks into gear. It's a teeny little, barely audible click. And that's what God gave at Mount Sinai. And Sholem comments upon that at great length, of course. He says that Mendel Torm of Raimanov's clever teaching makes the revelation a mystical one says that what happened at Mount Sinai was barely audible and uh, had no particular sound, and it therefore became the job of, in this case, Moses the prophet or of anyone else, to give human content to that otherwise unpronounceable sound. The Zohar says that the Aleph is a seed in which is enwrapped the entire Torah and what it means to be a religious person is to spend your life unpacking that seed. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that, I am aware of that, and it's just so huge that I didn't know if we could do it any kind of justice, but I think your story did open it up. Well, thank I, you. I just also have to say, that, you know, when I, I said earlier on, I feel like there's so much resonance with things we're learning now that feel unconnected i mean just i don't know that the 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 emphasis on on naming and letters and even the golem traditions of you know that using letters that gives life and then and then we're working with dna which is about letters <laughs> um i mean even the one the aleph and the one the not the ainsof but the Say it again. Sefirot, it's numbers. Sefirot, infrastructure of reality. Do you know what I'm saying? I feel like there yeah. are so many echoes with this mystical tradition and these cutting edge things we're learning on our, in fact, our frontiers of rationalism. Talking with you convinces me even more that Sholem was extraordinarily important hmm. because he brought this stuff to light. He read this stuff. He read it in manuscripts that weren't accessible to anybody, and they were written in, often in uh, dialects and styles of the language that few people could read or understood. And, and he left it to us as, uh, as an inheritance. Mm. And it seems, uh, from the questions that you're asking to me too, seems to be a way that uh, we have of finding our way home again. Mm. The epigraph that I chose for my novel, Kabbalah, A Love Story, 
um, is from Sholem. Uh, he says, uh, in none of their systems did the Kabbalists fail to stress the interrelation of all worlds and levels of being. Everything is connected with everything else. And this interpenetration of all things is governed by exact, though unfathomable, laws. We have the gnawing suspicion in our generation now, Krista, that everything is connected. Yeah. And every now and then we are given a glimpse, uh, a, a tickle, a whisper that maybe it indeed is. And that's what religious people seem to be most interested in appropriately doing, which is finding more and more connections so that it's impossible to do anything independent of something else. Rabbi Lawrence Kushner is the Emanuel Scholar at Congregation Emanuel in San Francisco. His many books include God Was in This Place and I, I Did Not Know, Kabbalah, A Love Story, and I'm God, You're Not. is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Casper Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, and Siri Grassley. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind, Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org discoveries. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.